0: Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you, so let's get to it. Now, I wrote seven sermons this week. I'm not kidding you, seven. Uh, When I first started preaching, I was like, how does anybody talk for 30 minutes? And, And now, it's like, I don't know how to narrow this down to under seven hours. So... I, uh, I wrote seven, I narrowed it down to three, and I told them to Taylor last night, and, and she said, well, which one's the shortest? And <laughs> I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. You guys are probably thinking that. But no, she didn't say that. Uh, and, and I thought I had the one I wanted. I woke up this morning, and I wrote a whole new one again. So eight sermons, which means all my sermons are written for the next two months, and uh, <laughs> I'm pretty pumped up about it, all right? So today what I do want to do and what I want to look at in our time together, however long it might be, uh, is I want to look at the claims that Jesus made about himself, the claims that are substantiated in his resurrection. If the tomb is empty, then these things are true about Jesus Christ. Jesus is interesting in the fact that there is nobody on this earth who has more books written about them, more songs written to them. No, nobody else has more lives that have been given or taken because of them. Every priest, every prophet, every preacher, every scientist, every philosopher since the time of Jesus has to deal with Jesus. And it doesn't matter what you believe here today or why you're here today in your life. You will have to deal with Jesus. Who is he and who is he to you? And so I thought we might cut through the clutter and see what this guy says about himself. Now, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump in. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus to us. Jesus, I pray that today we would leave this place with a focus on you. God, my only goal today is to make much of you. My only goal today is to make much of Jesus. That people would leave here just a little bit more in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done. And Lord, that they would feel the presence that you say is with us. Because Jesus is not in a tomb somewhere in Israel. He's on his throne and his presence is with us right now. And God, I pray for those who are suffering on this Easter Lord, I pray a special prayer for those who feel that You are far away from them, who feel that they are entrapped by darkness. I pray that today You would give them a spark of light, a spark of hope, in a way that only Your presence can. Jesus, it is in Your name that we pray, it is in Your name that I preach, and it is in Your name that I will uh, eventually sing at the end of this sermon. Lord, we love You and we praise You. Amen. I got too excited and I forgot to tell you, I remind you that if you have a kid under the age of 11 and they want to go jump on the bounce houses, uh, they're more than welcome to do that uh, by going out the back doors there. There should be adults somewhere. Kids, if there's not adults, don't go. I don't, I don't see adults, but I know adults are there. So if, you, if your kid hasn't already went and you want to walk them out there, you're more than welcome to do that. Now, let's jump in. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not, write it down because uh, it's Easter and you ought to do what I say. Okay. I didn't take my medicine this morning, so hang on. Number one, Jesus claimed to be from heaven. Look at John chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. It says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth, and he's speaking of Jesus here, is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life that has come from heaven. Jesus is from heaven. Now, that's pretty cool when you think about it, because I'm from Woodward. And Woodward and heaven are probably nothing alike. In fact, if I can think of an opposite place of heaven, it might be Woodward at times. You know, like, can you imagine meeting Jesus? Hey, Jesus, my name is Blake. Oh, hey, Blake, where are you from? I'm from Woodward. Where are you from, Jesus? I'm from heaven. You know, like what? What's the zip code to that place? You know, like this is amazing. And what it tells us is that Jesus is outside of time. In fact, in John chapter one, John paints the picture for us that Jesus is like somebody who's a painter of a piece of art or a writer of a novel. And he writes himself into the story. He paints himself into the painting. The one who is outside of time steps into time there is no man like this and there is nobody who makes a claim like this. Number 1, Jesus claimed to be from heaven. Number 2, Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin. And this is the one that got him in trouble with all the religious leaders. Look at Mark chapter 2 verses 5 through 7. So seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "Why does he speak like this?" That's my best self-righteous voice. <laughs> he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right to ask that question, you know, because I can't forgive sins for somebody else. And in the Jewish uh, thought and in the biblical thought, God is the one who we ultimately sin against. When you hurt somebody, you're not just hurting them. You're hurting God. When you sin against somebody, you're not just sinning against them. You're ultimately sinning against God. And only the one who's been sinned against has the power to forgive. So like if somebody runs into your car tomorrow and I see you at Walmart and you're in an argument with them and I jump in between you guys and I go, no, they forgive you. It's okay." You'll be like, get out of my way. It's not your place to say if I forgive them or not. That's my place. I get to decide who is forgiven and who is not forgiven when somebody does something to me. And here's Jesus taking the place of God saying I can forgive him. I do have the authority to forgive him because I'm not just a good man. I am the God man. And this makes the Pharisees all the more mad. All right, number three. You guys aren't excited yet. By the time we get to number seven, you better be excited or I'll just keep going because i got a hundred of these. (laughs) Jesus claimed to be sinless. Now, even atheistic people, people who don't believe in God at all, will tell you nobody's perfect. Nobody has ever claimed, yeah, I'm perfect. Who claims that? You know, like if I were to claim that, it would be foolish because my family knows me. You know, in fact, on Easter, one of the hardest, thing, hardest people to preach to is my family, especially the people who changed my diaper. You know, they know I am sinful. They, they, would, they would call me out immediately if I tried to claim to be sinless. And yet, Jesus claims to be sinless. Look at this John chapter 8, verse 46. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? And what theologians will tell us is that this is setting up for something called the great exchange. The reason why Jesus came and he was sinless is because he had to be the sinless, sinless lamb who would take away the sins of the world forever. He had to live the life we could not live, a complete righteous life, a life that you and I could not live. You know, there's not like a line where the pretty good people are OK. God expects complete and total perfection from us. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, Oprah's a pretty good person, so I think she's OK. You know, or, or, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't done anything bad, so I'm OK with God. No, even one sin takes us from that category of good to that category of evil. We needed somebody to advocate on our behalf. Somebody who would come and live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die. And this is what Jesus does. Second Corinthians 5.21 lays out the great exchange for us. He, he being God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he's not saying that Jesus was made a sinner Jesus was given the status of a sinner. Jesus took the place that I was supposed to pay. In fact, the Bible says my wages for sin is death. So you know what I deserve I deserve a crown of thorns. And yet one came who did not deserve death. He deserved eternal life. He deserved a crown full of the finest jewels. And yet he laid that right down and he lived a life of poverty. And he walked on this earth with those whom he had created. And they nailed Him to a cross not because He couldn't stop them, but because He wouldn't stop them. Because He was dying the death that Blake Farley deserved to die. They took nine-inch nails and they drove Him through His wrist and through His feet. They spit in His face with spit glands that He created. And they put a crown of thorns on His head and He bled and He died. And He said, this counts for Blake's penalty. So that in the heavens... God could say, it is finished. This separates Jesus from every other philosopher, every other world religion leader that there is. In fact, if you look at the last words of the Buddha, his very last words are, strive unceasingly. The last words that Jesus utters from the cross is, it is finished. One says do, one says done. Jesus says, I'll take your sin, you take my righteousness. In Ephesians, Paul says, I am seated in the heavenlies with him. He deserves the throne, and I get the throne. He deserves the crown of jewels, and I get a crown of jewels because of what Jesus has done. All because he claimed to be, and he was, sinless. That should have gotten an amen from somebody. (laughs) Good night. Number four, Jesus claimed to start a movement that wouldn't be overcome. Look, Look at this. This is a ridiculous claim that he makes. Absolutely ridiculous in the moment. Uh, Mark, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, P, uh, Jesus says to Peter, he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, we live, you know, we're church folk. We live in, we live in, in the Bible, but we're like, yeah, you know, Jesus is going to overcome the gates of hell. But think about where jesus is saying this this is before we know jesus is god you know this is before his resurrection and he's sitting there a bunch with a bunch of knuckleheads and these 12 guys are are nothing they're fishermen they're not the brightest guys and jesus says you know you 12 boys from you guys a movement is going to begin and the gates of hell will not overcome it i think it's hilarious that he mentions peter by name peter peter's the last guy you would expect a movement to be built upon i love peter because he reminds me of myself Peter often says things without thinking. You know, it's, I, was, I had allergies a couple uh, weeks ago, and uh, every time I sneezed, I thought, you know, this is a perfect illustration of the way I speak. You know, I, I, something comes inside of me, and it comes out before I even know what's happening, and it leaves a big mess. That's the way Peter spoke, and that's the way I speak. Uh, you know, my grandma said, yeah, you know. I don't, I don't even know. If, yeah. So, you know, most infamously... Uh, when I was taking my wife out on one of our very first dates. You know, she was coming out of the, the house and she looked good. And I was trying to compliment her. Trying to compliment her. And as I opened the door to the truck, I say, Get in this big truck, you big woman. It's like a sneeze. I didn't see it coming. We just and there was a mess. It's a miracle she married me, folks. And I'm ashamed to say, you know, more recently, after we got married, she had bought a cardigan, which is like, you know, a fancy little thing you put over your shirt. I don't know what it does. It looks pointless to me. It did not keep any cold out. But she bought it, and, 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 you know, I thought it was cow print. I didn't know cow print and leopard print looked so much alike. And so, again, you know, she comes out, and I think she looks good. I mean, really, she looks good, guys. And I say to her, you look like a cute little cow. You know, I don't even know... This is the Apostle Peter. Peter and Blake are a lot alike. And Jesus says, on you, on this confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is ridiculous. And yet nobody's laughing now, are they? See, the Roman Empire thought they could stump out this movement right at the beginning. They said, we'll kill Jesus. And just like we've killed all the other people who claim to be Jewish messiahs, their movements die with them. And yet when Jesus died, His movement did die. In fact, if you look at the the accounts of Saturday, Jesus had no believers left. They were scattered, and they were honestly trying to avoid even being connected to Jesus because they feared for their own life. So what started the movement that would overcome the Roman Empire? Well, on Friday they watched Him die, and on Sunday they were eating fish with Him on the beach. And from that, these people said, We cannot, we will not deny Him any further. Because we've seen a man who was dead, and now he is alive. Amen. Amen. And it so overtook the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire made Christianity its official religion. And many people thought, well, when the Roman Empire dies, Christianity will die with it. Well, now you can walk through the ruins of the Roman Empire for about ten bucks. But the movement of Christianity, the movement of Jesus is as strong as ever. Uh, Muhammad, the prophet who began the religion of Islam, came about 800 years after Jesus, and he began to claim that Jesus was not God. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a man that we should honor and, and have much favor for, but he was not God, and he sought to destroy Christianity. And yet, Christianity is still as strong as ever. And then the Enlightenment came. And in the Enlightenment, all these smart guys said, oh, we are so scientific, and we've got it all figured out, and God you will know, just go away, because look at how smart we are. We've got it all figured out. And yet the Enlightenment did not kill Jesus either. In fact, it's now been over 130 years since Nietzsche said God is dead. Well, 130 years later, you know who's dead? It's not God, it's Nietzsche. (laughs) Even today, people will say the church is dying. The church is declining. And that might be true in some places. But friends, look around the room. His movement will not die because he is the one who has resurrection life within him. In fact, G.K. Chesterton, uh, who's one of my uh, favorite dead pastors, says this. He says, (laughs) he won't be dead for long, though. Tomb's empty. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. We have confidence, friends, that the gates of hell will not prevail over this movement started by Jesus. Number five, Jesus claimed to be God. This is the big one. Uh, This is the part where you either drink Kool-Aid or the guy is right. He claims to be God. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Can't separate us. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, this is the one nobody likes. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Tells one of his disciples who says, can we see God? Can we see what he looks like? And he says, do you not get it yet? I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And this is ultimately what the Jews wanted to kill him for. John ten thirty three. We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. See, what Jesus has not left open to us is for us to call him simply a good teacher or a good philosopher. If he is lying about this, he's an evil man. He's a lunatic. He's on the level of David Koresh if he's not telling the truth about what he's doing right now. He cannot just be a good teacher. He cannot just be a good prophet. He's either God or he's not. If he's God, he's also a good teacher. But if he's just a good teacher and he claims to be God, then he is neither. And yet, we know as Christians that Jesus is not just a good man. We believe him to be the God man. And the reason why we believe that is because of number six. Number six is Jesus claimed he'd rise from the dead. Uh, He has an interaction with the Pharisees here. This is from John chapter 2. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He's already making people mad. He goes into the temple with a whip. He's driving people out. He's moving stuff around. He's saying, I am the Messiah. He's making claims that are crazy. Claims that put Him on the same level as God. And the Pharisees, as probably we all would say, is, you know, by what authority do you say these things? You you can't just go around calling yourself God. If I go around calling myself God, you guys are going to put me in a mental institution. You know? So how can he say these kinds of things? Well, Look at it. John chapter 2, 18 through 22. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said the temple took 46 years to build. Will you raise it up in three days? They misunderstand it. He's talking about his body and they're like, you're going to destroy this building and build it by yourself in three days. Okay. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture in the statement Jesus had made. See, Jesus is unlike any other world religion leader or any other person who's ever claimed to be God, because when they want you to know that they're God, they make you rely on signs that you can't validate. You know, we think of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion. We're supposed to believe that God spoke to him in a forest somewhere. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really skeptical. Can we be sure that that was God and not a bad burrito from last night? I mean, I've had some visions that were definitely not from God. You know, how can I be certain that he wasn't smoking something a little odd before he went into that forest? You see, Jesus comes and he says, you don't have to trust me on any of the miracles that I'm doing because you're going to bury me. You're going to watch me bleed to death They're going to take a spear through my side to make sure my heart is punctured and I am dead. And then the tomb will be empty in three days. And this is what the Christian faith is built upon. N.T. Wright uh, is is an author, scholar, and a pastor. And uh, he's written about a 600-page book on the resurrection. If you guys are bored, you have a lot of time to read, I would recommend it. Uh, Seriously, I would recommend it if if it's something that you've struggled with. Because he he goes through as a history scholar, and he proves the resurrection of Jesus. He proves that there there can't be any other response to this than the fact that something actually happened on that day when Jesus rose from the dead. Because there's no other explanation for it. And N.T. Wright says this. He says, the only reason the death of Jesus was ever thought of as a good news was because of what happened next. The only reason why we celebrate that Jesus died on a cross is... Is because he rose again, proving he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he would ultimately do. And friends, right now, I could take you to the tomb of Buddha. I could take you to the tomb of Muhammad. I could take you to the tomb of David Koresh. I could take you to the tomb of Krishna, but I cannot take you to the tomb of Jesus. You know why? Because he's not there. Amen. I got a pastor friend who went to uh, Israel on a tour, and, uh, you know, they sell everything. I mean, they'll take you every... They just make stuff up. But like, this is where David lost his first tooth when he was a baby. Give us 40 <laughs> bucks and a picture, you know? <laughs> and uh, even the tour guy was like, yeah, we don't have any idea where Jesus was buried. We don't know. It's kind of strange, isn't it? You know, you think you would know where he was buried, huh? It's kind of strange. My friend's like, it's not strange at all. The reason we don't know is because he's not there. Jesus has risen from the dead. And it started this movement that we're all celebrating today. I got a screech from a baby. I'm going to take that as an amen. (laughs) Number seven. It's the last one I've got, and it's the best one. Jesus claimed that he is coming back to defeat death. (laughs) Jesus claimed that he's going to come back, and when he comes back, he's bringing hell with him to destroy hell, to destroy Hades, and to destroy the power of death itself. This is so cool. Now you might wonder where Jesus is today. So if Jesus resurrected from the dead, I remember as a kid I thought this it like hit me. I was like, wait, he resurrected from the dead, but he's not here. Did he die again? You know, what, is he hiding out in a cave in Israel somewhere? Where where is this God? And uh, you know, why hasn't he started a podcast yet or a Twitter? And you know, hey, it's Jesus. I'm here. You know, wh- why has he not done that? Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus presented himself to many testimonies for 40 days. In fact, the New Testament is full of proofs like this. Uh, The Apostle Paul will say, hey, go ask such and such person because they were there. (laughs) Like, you don't believe it? That's fine. Go ask Brother Jim. He saw Jesus dead and then alive. So Jesus made himself uh, aware to these people to have the testimony of his life. And then after 40 days, he ascended to his throne. And the ascension is actually supposed to be something that we celebrate. It's something that is good because Jesus is ruling and reigning and he sent his spirit to us so that wherever we are, Jesus is with us. Now, the scripture talks about Jesus, where he actually is right now quite a bit. I'll just give you two examples. The first one comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. It says, but this man being Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. That's the coolest picture of Jesus. He's on his throne and his enemies are his footstool. That's awesome. He's not worried. We get worried about things in this world, don't we? Jesus is kicking back, relaxing, making his enemies his footstool right now. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last of those enemies, the very last one, will be the enemy of death. He's going to come back and destroy that one after all His other enemies have been made His footstool. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says this. says who, and the who there is referring to Jesus. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. We can't even imagine what Jesus is like right now because when He came to us, He was meek and mild. He was the lamb that came to take away the sins of the world. But right now, friends, He is the Lion of Judah. And if you saw Him, your face would melt off of your skull. In fact, this is what the Apostle John shows us. John had an amazing privilege when he's writing the book of Revelation. It's a revelation from God. He gets a vision into the throne room of God. He gets to see Jesus in his current state. And here's what he said. This will blow your socks off. Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades. That's awesome. Some people come to me and they say, Blake, when I get to heaven, i got some questions for Jesus. You know, like You're going to question Jesus? No! You're going to fall on your face like a dead man. His face is as bright as the sun that is shining. And I can't wait, friends, for that day in which He returns and He destroys all of His enemies once and for all. Oh, and we get a picture of that too at the end of Revelation. Revelation's got a whole bunch of crazy stuff. People do crazy things with it. But just ignore the crazy stuff and look at what it says about who Jesus is and how we worship him and what he's going to do. Because this part will sing Revelation chapter 21 verses three and four at the end of it all. The last chapter of your Bible says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. One day, Jesus will walk with us. Friends, his dwelling will not be in a physical place. His dwelling will be the whole world. It will not be contained to a temple. It'll be all over the place. And he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And they are peoples from all different countries, all different languages, all different cultures. Right now, isn't it cool that there are languages we can't even understand and they're preaching the same message that I'm preaching. All over the world, in the Middle East right now, there are people who are gathering together at the sake of their life. With their life at stake, rather. That they come together and a pastor like me can't yell excitingly. He's got to whisper because if he speaks too loudly, they'll kill him. And they'll kill the people there. And yet they find it so compelling that they say, you know what, we don't care. Kill us. If you want to kill us, kill us. But we're not going to stop gathering in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they believe he is risen. And friends, I should have way more in common with a Chinese Christian than I do an American atheist. My brothers and sisters are all over this world and I don't even know them yet. And I'm excited for eternity with them. All peoples will be there. And then it says, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. When Jesus comes back, there will be no such thing as childhood cancer. When Jesus comes back, there will be no such thing as relationships that fall apart. When Jesus comes back, there will be no such thing as poverty and sickness and those who die because they lack the water to sustain them. When Jesus comes back, all of the evil that is in this world will be gone because death itself will be gone. We won't cry because there will be no need for tears when this King of King, this Lord of Lord returns with his face shining as bright as the sun with swords coming out of his mouth and tattoos on his thighs. That's right. <laughs> My Jesus is a king and he's the only king. He's the Lord of Lords and he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world so that we might see him as that king. And Zach and everybody else is singing. If you guys want to go ahead and come up, I'm coming. Coming to the conclusion, I could keep going, but I know you got Easter Bunny stuff to do and you got eggs to find. So I'm going to close here. And I want to ask the question: You know, why has he not come back already? And come back! Let's destroy childhood cancer now. Let's get rid of this stuff now. And friends, the reason why he has not came back is because of some of you in this room. In Romans, Paul tells us that God's patience is His kindness. There are three thrones that Jesus will set on. One He's already sitting on. He came the first time to sit on the throne above all of the spiritual principalities. He took the power away from Satan. The first Adam messed up. The first Adam sinned, as we all do, going to the tree and eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the, the problem wasn't that he ate an apple, like Veggie VeggieTales will tell you. No. The problem was the tree that they ate from. That they thought for themselves, we can decide what is right and what is wrong. We can be God. I'll call what is good what I think is good, and I'll call bad what I think is bad. And friends, we live in a culture now more so than ever that is so confused because we're all trying to be God. You know, what was good 15 years ago is now called bad, and what was bad 15 years ago is now called good. You almost need to wake up every morning and turn on your computer to find out whether what you said last night was correct or not by the standards of this society. And it's not just this society. It's all human history. It's all of us. We all want to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. The first Adam failed. He went to the tree and he ate of it. The second Adam came and he had a completely different mission. Jesus' mission wasn't to stay away from the tree. Jesus' mission was to go to the tree and die for the sins of this world. And he was tempted just as Adam was tempted and just as we are tempted. And yet he did not succumb to that temptation. And in Genesis 3, after they've fallen, there's this prophecy, this promise... God says the snake will bite the heel of the seed that is to come from the woman, but he will crush its head. On the cross, we see the bite on the heel. And in the resurrection, we see the crushing of the snake. Satan is still real. He still exists, but he's a toothless snake. Because Jesus has crushed him. And Jesus ultimately will crush him when he comes back. He sits on the throne there. And He will sit on a throne, as I've spoken, when He comes back. He will literally lead over this country. All the kings of this earth will bow down. They'll either do it in humility now or humiliation later. But they will bow down to Him. But the throne that He's searching for right now is the throne of your heart. It is the reason why He has not yet come back. Because He wants to see you see Him as who He truly is. And to have a Copernicus moment. You guys know who Copernicus is. You probably didn't pay attention in school. I didn't either, but I saw it on Google last week. (laughs) Copernicus was the scientist who said, you know what, guys? I actually don't think the earth is the center of the universe. I think we rotate around the sun, not the other way around. And they're like, Copernicus. You're so dumb. (laughs) Copernicus. And then he's right. We rotate around the sun. And everything changed. But with Jesus, he's looking for that same kind of moment in your life. See, right now, you think everything revolves around you. You maybe know of Jesus and you think Jesus is supposed to help you, and you're the center of Jesus' universe, and you're the apple of Jesus's eye. And I tell you what, Jesus does love you, but he's for you, it's not about you. It's about him. Amen. He is the Son that our life is to rotate around. He is the thing that we are to surrender all to as we seek after him and we follow Him. I'm going to end with this quote from Francis Chan. Actually, I'm not. It's not in my notes, but I'll tell you what Francis Chan said. (laughs) Francis Chan said those that are crazy in this world are not those who give everything up for Jesus. The crazy ones are actually the ones who see Jesus, who see his resurrection and decide, nah, I'm not going to give it up to him. The crazy ones are the ones who look at us as Christians and say, you're crazy for giving all of that up. And we would say, how can you see Jesus and not give it all up? How could you not see Jesus and see Him as worthy of all that I have and all that I am? Friends, if you would, close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment. I want you to ask God a question. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time you've prayed in a long time, and that's okay. I want you to ask God here in just a moment, what are you saying to you through this message? And I believe for some of you, God's going to tell you that it's time to come back home. There was a time in which you followed Jesus. There was a time in which He was the thing that you rotated your life around, but life happened, you got busy, work happened, sickness happened, death happened, whatever happened. And before you knew it, you drifted away from God. And I believe He's calling some of you back to Him today. And for some of you, you grew up in a a church or you grew up around the Bible Belt culture and you knew the name of Jesus, but you never knew He was this Jesus. You ever knew that He was all-consuming and that He calls for you to worship Him and to bow to Him. And for the first time in your life, you want to repent and, and follow Jesus. Friend, if that's you, then your next step is to be baptized, to follow what Jesus says and to join the church, which is just people walking with Jesus together. And the last group of you are those of you who are hurting. Those of you who are Christians who love Jesus, but in the brokenness of the world, it can be easy to forget. And I believe for you today, God is giving you hope. So if you would, right now, friends, pray. God, what are you saying to me through this message? I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to listen. Jesus, you are worthy, 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 worthy of all our worship. God, I pray that nobody would leave this place without doing what they feel led to do by you. God, if they need to talk to somebody, I pray that they would talk to me. They would pray to you. They would spend as much time in this place as they need to, to deal with whatever it is you've called them to do. And I pray that we would not leave this place and immediately go into thinking about Easter bunnies and what we've got to do with family and pictures and all the sort of things that come around this, but that for the rest of this day... In the back of our minds would be the fact that there is a tomb that is empty and because of that we celebrate with joy in all of life. That we join with the Apostle Paul and we say for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, stand and worship this risen King. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.